This is a show about seven people with bizarre superhuman abilities, and it does such a good job of saying, these people have these abilities. Okay, everything else has to be realistic. Mm-hmm. And it's whimsical and farcical in some ways, but never to a point where it breaks the suspension of disbelief. Yeah, they're still humans responding to this, you know, the one by that you kind of get for this sort of premise. Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Faithix. And I'm Charlotte. This week we're going to talk about seasons one and two of Umbrella Academy. We're not going to talk about season three because they haven't aired it yet. Yep. Before we get into that, we want to do a quick shout out for our latest Patreon supporter, Kari. Thank you for supporting the show. If any of you would like to be able to listen to our recordings live, you can join up for just $1 and you get full access to our Discord where we do all the recording live stuff. Yep. You can go higher and get bonus episodes as well, which are pretty cool, but you can start for just a dollar. Yep. Okay. Umbrella Academy. Uh, we're obviously going to be spoiling seasons one and two. We've not read the graphic novels, so we won't spoil those, I guess. Except in as much as the show does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if we have any other spoiler or content warnings, we're going to drop those in right here. Hello! We have managed to stay pretty light on spoilers this time. There's a couple of allusions to Legion, but there's really no actual spoilers. Similarly, there aren't really any content warnings. We talk a bit about the civil rights movement and homophobia in the 60s, and that's about it. And back to the past. Welcome back. Umbrella Academy follows the story of seven siblings that have been adopted by Reginald Hargreaves' eccentric billionaire, because they were all born at the exact same time, on the exact same day, to women who weren't pregnant before that moment. They have special abilities... And other people in the universe presumably also have abilities because there were more of them that weren't found. Season one has number five of the kids come back from the future to tell them that there's going to be an apocalypse in a week and they have to stop it. And then they do. Probably need a little bit more than that, don't we? Yeah. Uh, They find out that number seven, Vanya, is the cause of the apocalypse and they try to stop her and don't, but do travel back in time at the last moment to avoid it. Then season two, which is... Very different, and takes place in the 60s, in which they find that there's going to be an apocalypse. And then they find that Vanya is the cause of it, and they have to stop it. And they do this time. And then they time travel again. There we go. That's that's the first two seasons. Yeah, although in fairness to Vanya, at the end of the second season, it's nuclear war that is kicked off by her having been kidnapped by the FBI. This is true. It's not exactly the same as her destroying the moon which causes the apocalypse in a more literal ultimate fashion as in season one yeah uh there is obviously a lot of nuance and subplots that take part in that and we'll cover those as they're relevant because there's a lot yeah there is a lot packed into the show we do just want to note before we get into this obviously since the first two seasons of this have aired elliot page has come out as trans Uh, We're going to be using she, her pronouns for Vanya as a character as she's referred to as female within the show. If we refer to Elliot Page, we'll be using he, they. Okay, so I think the first and main thing that we wanted to talk about this is how the show depicts family dynamics within this very strange family. 
Yeah, family develop uh, family dynamics and certain aspects of child development through flashbacks and just like developmental issues that are just very interesting in the way that they're shown. Yeah, both seasons effectively hinge on the fact that the way that Hargreaves raised Vanya was a- abusive. Yeah, he was neglectful and he gaslit her for her entire life. Yeah. Like emotionally neglectful, not materially not materially neglectful, but that's still a form of neglect. I mean, there was that point where he locked her in a soundproof basement and... Yeah, that is also abuse. Yes. Like, I mean, I think that's probably yeah. material neglect as well. Well, neglect is different suppose, than yeah. abuse. I mean, it, neglect is a form of abuse, um, but material neglect is more like not feeding your kid or... Okay, like, fair enough. Leaving yeah. them outside or things like that. But anyway, yeah, he made her feel like she was less important than the other kids for her entire life and was not a particularly warm parent to any of them, but really went out of his way to make her think she was an outsider even within this house of outsiders. But like even aside from that, which is a pretty good way of like showing what that kind of neglect looks like, of just like having this one child who is clearly at the bottom of the hierarchy and being told they're not important their whole lives, like the toll that kind of takes on a person. There's just so many other aspects of their development that are sh- and their relationships with one another and their reactions to each other that are just very true to patterns that you see in families and in kids and at the developmental stages that they show them in. Um, like the point at which Hargreaves becomes afraid of Vanya's powers and then decides to just make her think and make everyone think she doesn't have any is because she keeps pushing the boundaries in a way that is very, very true of young kids, of lashing out in certain ways and trying to establish, like, how far can I rebel before a boundary is held to, pushing the maids. And it's, it's just this is what happens when your three-year-old has superpowers. Yeah, with the order in which we're shown things, it's a little bit messed up because it very much appears that Vanya has killed, like, three caretakers and tried to kill the robot caretaker too. Mm -hmm. And then, during a training session, hurts Hargreaves a little bit. Breaks his monocle, draws a little bit of blood. And at that point, he's like, oh, well, she's too dangerous. We'll have to lock her away. Yeah, it doesn't... The murder, not so much. Yeah, (laughs) it, it doesn't really make any sense because... That honestly showed a lot of control because I think she's like seven or something or like I think she's actually supposed to be like four or something like that. Um, Our watching of this show did consist of a lot of pausing it and going, okay, well, if that character's that age and that happened that many years ago, then that must mean. Yeah, it looked like she was a decent amount older in the breaking the monocle training scene than she was in the killing all the caretakers because she didn't want to eat breakfast scene. And so I assumed it was a few years later. But it seems that it wasn't because she's very clearly like still a very young child in the oatmeal scene. And then her sister says that it was when they were like four that they were all told that Vanya got sick, which is the point where Hargreaves made her tell Vanya that she didn't have powers, which would make Vanya think that she didn't have powers. Um, But that means that like at four years old, as a quote unquote tantrum, she had enough control to really just make it clear that she was not going to cooperate, but not actually hurt or kill Hargreaves. She didn't want to. She clearly like had more attachment to him, didn't want to hurt him, 
than she felt toward any of the nannies before, the caretakers before. And to be honest, that's what he was looking for, is for her to have control. So yeah, it's just like, oh, it got too close to me, and so now I'm freaked out. What is What? <laughs> ah. This is one of those yeah. things of like, how do you, I mean, and early childhood development stuff, I'm sure, like not up on this, like boundary setting with kids that age, I'm sure it's not something he knew how to do, but like, I don't know, it's, it's so weird. It's like, did Luther never push him at that age? Did Diego never throw anything at him? Do you see what I mean? Like, I'm sure yeah. that kind of shit had to have happened with all the other kids. And it's just like, she cracks his monocles and he's out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is his monocle. So. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And he barely cuts his his uh, face hood disguise. It's not even his actual face. Yeah. Because he's an alien. It's shown that his face is actually just like a weird flesh mask toward the I, end of the second season. It's very interesting the way that all seven of them are depicted to have had such different reactions to Hargreaves. Different levels of abuse to each of them. Yeah. I mean, you talked about the hierarchical thing. And you say, did Luther never, never push him? Probably not, actually. I, I mean, there had to have been a bath time at some point, right. you know, like I'm just saying, like, I mean, I guess Hargreaves was probably pretty hands off. Luther probably pushed the nanny, <laughs> but like Luther being the one who toes the line and is like, oh, yes, you know, dad has a plan and it's all very logical. Makes a lot of sense for the person who has been put in charge of that situation. It's the you're my number two by being number one. So you kind of get that guard in charge of prisoners yeah situation going on you're not questioning the power structure because you're benefiting from it right which then you see diego chafing constantly because he's in that position of having been designated number two and so it's like but why can't i be number one the same point of questioning that hierarchy also wanting to advance within it because you're so close which is the thing like we were talking earlier about luther isn't good at coming up with plans no he's not and Diego isn't good at coming up with plans, but he's always the first one to cut down Luther when Luther comes up with a plan that isn't really a plan. Right. Yeah. Luther comes up with like one point that is a part of a larger plan, which Diego always points out like that's not a plan. That's a location. That's not a plan. That's like one thing we're going to do, but you haven't outlined how. But he then, as you say, like does the same thing. He doesn't he doesn't follow it through to the consequences, to the how and then to the what then and to the why. Like, the why hardly ever occurs to Diego. I'm going to save Kennedy because Mm -hmm. I'm the hero. Okay, but what's going to happen when you do? Because that's clearly what causes the apocalypse. Everyone else has worked out that killing Kennedy, making sure he gets assassinated, is the solution here. How have you not caught up with this? Yeah, it's because he's too blinded by wanting to progress within that hierarchy and prove himself to be the person who deserves to be on top. Allison has that, I'm just going to remove myself from this situation response. Mm-hmm. Goes off and forms her own family entirely. Yeah. Like she's recognized that the situation is toxic and has decided that she has the power to surround herself with people who want to be around her and who are not trying to use her in the way that her father did. Although she still is because then she becomes like a famous actress. And so she probably is surrounded by people who are trying to use her to build themselves up. But she feels like she has more power in that situation because she literally has more power in those situations through her ability to make people do whatever she wants by saying that they will do whatever she wants. Yeah. It's interesting to have had her completely leave the area and have fallen out of touch with everyone. Mm -hmm. Like she's gone and forged her own life. 
to the exclusion of any contact even with Luther. Yeah. Well, she's the one who's decided, okay, my family is toxic and I don't like who I am in that environment and I don't like that environment. And so I'm going to cut them out of my life and start anew somewhere else. And I know lots of people who have come from toxic family environments and have decided, well, I just am never going to talk to any of those people ever again. Yeah. I find it fascinating that they managed to construct these seven very distinct characters. And I feel as though they do all just take that starting point of, how did they react to Hargreaves? Yeah. And then everything from there is just sort of logical extrapolation. Mm-hmm. Luther always wants to be in control and have a plan, but also always wants someone to affirm that plan. Yeah, he needs validation constantly. He doesn't actually trust his own ability to make a plan or lead because he never really did that. Hargreaves always did that. He was just the lieutenant. He was the person who was passing along the orders. He was never coming up with them himself. Yeah. Part of that's Hargreaves because he was so autocratic in the way that he raised and trained them to be this mutant strike force that he, he never trusted them enough to have them learn how to do that and actually execute anything on their own. He was always calling all the shots. You can't learn to ride a bike if you never take off the training wheels. Klaus, having been thoroughly traumatized by Hargreaves. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess his character is an extrapolation of what would happen if you saw the dead everywhere you went, yeah. combined with what if your only father figure was like, just just get tormented by that straight for a while. I'm going to lock you in a mausoleum. Yeah. A lot of his coping mechanisms ring very true. Yeah, especially since you realize that when he is intoxicated, it blunts his abilities, and he was traumatized in a circumstance of trying to use his abilities, so they are wrapped up in his mind with pain and agony and disappointment and shame that, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that he's going to want to distance himself from that as much as possible and also have some fucking privacy, you know, have his mind and his perception to himself and as close It's weird, his altered consciousness is the closest thing to a normal perception of the world as far as other people get that he'll ever experience. Yeah, there is, I think, a lot to say about Klaus and his journey. I kind of want to come back to that in full later. Yeah. And then Five is just shown as like an ultimate pragmatist. Mm -hmm. He sees what he wants to do and what he needs to do and he wants to do it. Like he doesn't want to be in control. He of the team or anything. He just wants to go and do the thing that he thinks that he's doing. He's and- much more focused on the outcome. That he- yeah. Yeah. And not as worried about the means. It's very much ends for him. Ben, we obviously get a lot less of his youth, but it's very clear that he's mostly tormented by his power and the fact that that power is being used for violence. Yeah. And then Vanya we touched on already. So I think there are a few interpersonal things we want to talk about here before we move on. Pogo and Grace's position within the family is really weird. It is really, really weird. Grace is a strange mother figure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of messed up things with her existing in any way, with the fact that she's based on someone Hargreaves knew. Mm-hmm. And also adding to that the fact that at the end of season two, she's still alive, which means that in the 80s when he built, or the 90s when he builds Gracebot, she might still be alive. Possibly. It's unclear. And then Pogo is an interesting storytelling device. Yeah. Because he's has a lot of the roles that a father figure would have in that first season when their father isn't around mm-hmm. in any format. 
other than flashbacks and ends up being like someone that can be killed off to create a lot of guilt. Mm-hmm. But it's very much a plot device that he's like sworn to secrecy mm-hmm. to a point where like, yeah, but at the point at which you know the world is going to end in a week and Hargreaves is dead, you, you could just tell people these things. Yeah. Well, he's effectively Hargreaves' first child from a previous marriage and mm. has loyalty that's a little different than the other kids. His loyalty is to Hargreaves more than to anyone else, even more than to the robot version of Grace because his loyalty would be more to the original Grace who was a nurturing influence on him when he was young along with Hargreaves who was much more nurturing to him in the flashbacks of us seeing him with Pogo in the 60s than he was to the children in the 80s and 90s. And so he's got a much more like affection-based attachment and also he feels like he owes Hargreaves everything he's capable of doing, like his level of intelligence he owes to Hargreaves and his probably his lifespan is also to Hargreaves. Like, so I can understand why Pogo in a lot of ways feels like he owes Hargreaves his loyalty beyond the kids. Point being, I understand and I don't question the loyalty he has. I do agree that it is maybe carried too far once Hargreaves is dead. Yeah, there's definitely a couple of moments where he turned up and was like, Ah, yes, now that you've worked that out, I'll explain the rest. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you, you could have told them like two or three days ago would have been fine. Yeah. The moment had really come up. Mm-hmm. I think the relationship between Vanya and Allison is an interesting little addition in there. In fact, the relationship between Vanya and Five as well. Mm-hmm. Like Vanya has a really close relationship with two of her siblings. And with Allison, it feels very much just because they're the two girls there. Yeah, and with five, it might also be because they're at the bottom of the hierarchy. But it's hard to be sure if that's the case. I don't know how much the hierarchy matters after one. Mm. I think it's just that... Well, it's their ranked usefulness according to their father, so... I think the thing is that five... Like, Diego yells about the fact that he doesn't care what his dad thinks. But all of his actions say otherwise right i think five really doesn't care what his dad thinks i think that for him hargreaves is an interesting source of information mm-hmm. but and a he's frustrating a... source of limitations right so when five is told vanya doesn't have any powers she's not special you don't need to worry about her he's like no i think there's a purpose here and like i think they're the two most intellectual of the group vanya and five yeah I don't think it's by accident that the thing that Five is making all of his notes and equations in is a copy of Vanya's book. Mm-hmm. Those are the two like intellectual creative outputs that exist in the... And the violin yeah. that Vanya plays. She becomes a concert violinist and is a really impressive one. And violin uh, music is closely tied to math which is also very important to time travel. Like physics are very tied up in both of their powers. Yeah. Ultimately, they do have a lot in common in those regards. I really like how that entire relationship is displayed. It's fairly subtle Mm -hmm. because like there's the first moment like when Five comes back, he goes and sees Vanyo because he trusts her. Mm -hmm. But it's so early on that we don't necessarily have all the pieces there yet. Yeah, but they have already set it up in an even more subtle way by when they are talking about 
his disappearance, uh, it's mentioned by her and Pogo that for like a really long time after his disappearance, she kept making snacks for him and leaving them out at night and leaving the lights on and things like that. Like she was kind of, you know, doing that yeah, uh, widow's walk type of thing of trying to make sure that when he came home, there were things to welcome him and he would feel at home trying to maintain that connection. But I think the biggest tell is when you see him in the future as a kid coming back to the ruins of the academy mm-hmm. and the first name that he yells is Vanya. Yeah. She's the first one that springs to mind in that situation. Yeah. The first one he's worried about. Yeah. And looking for. Mm-hmm. I think the last part of the weird family dynamics I wanted to look at was the whole Luther Arson thing. Yeah. Yeah. That one is really weird. and I'm not quite sure how... I resolve that because it is very common for kids who aren't related who are in like like a group home or something together to like have romantic feelings like that. But they were raised together from infancy and usually when you're raised from infancy with somebody there are like weird mechanisms that basically make you think of them as your sibling and not be interested in them. There might be an extent yeah. to which like you don't get the impression that they ever meet anyone else yeah they're very isolated and there is that aspect to it there's also the aspect to it of they're not even necessarily explicitly encouraged to think of each other as siblings like they do because that's their race together and because grace the robot mom does kind of treat them that way but like hargreaves is not really trying to bond with them or make sure they bond with each other so it's weird like he wants them to work as a team he doesn't want them to like play nice and share and be close and teach each other things in the way that I think a lot of people want children who are sibling to interact. Yeah, I think Ben's funeral scene is very telling for some of that. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like the way that that is held is it's not the care and affection about the fact that you've lost a sibling. It's that you failed as a team. Yeah. Like even in that situation... He can't view them as family to himself or others. Yeah. And I think it's it makes a lot of sense that when they go back to the past and find younger Hargreaves and are like, we're your kids. He's like, no, you're not. You I can't. would never do that. <laughs> yeah. I know who I am. And in the future, I don't have kids. And he probably shouldn't. Yeah. And he do- he's having them for the wrong reasons. Like, he adopts them for the wrong reasons. He doesn't adopt them because he wants to raise them and he wants to be a parent. He's not a very good parent and he doesn't really make any effort to try to be a good parent. It's that he wants to control a source of power and influence the world through control of those powerful people. Yeah. I do appreciate how that's carried forward, the Alice and Luther thing. Like, it comes up perennially everyone's sort of aware of it and nothing ever comes of it because it's such a strong taboo but it is always sort of like the awkward cringy factor in any room they're both in and or whenever one of them comes up around the other there's a nod to it later on from one of the siblings it's like oh yeah you two and they're like what what are you talking about i can't remember who brings it up in what context yeah and it's just very clear that everyone picked up on that kind of stuff because how would you not if you're living in the same house for literally your entire childhoods it's the huh luther's snuck out again Mm. yeah so is allison Mm. Hmm. yeah well not all Yeah, well, like, even when Hargreaves, like, catches them hanging out outside recreational time, his complaint is not 
uh, you guys are siblings and being raised together and like you shouldn't be being romantic, which they weren't even. They were just kind of hanging out for, as far as like anything that he actually observed or anything. But it's not that he is concerned about potential romantic entanglements between the two of them. It's that it's outside recreational time and like you need to stick to this very structured schedule of responsibilities that I've laid out for you that includes lots of time for you to train and fight crime. You've got that half an hour on a Saturday. Right, exactly. Like, extremely limited amount of free time. Uh, So we have a question that we wrote to ourselves here, and I'm not sure what we're going to do with it. Uh, I have written here, what it means to be a good mother, father, child. I think that was, like, generational and, like, different time period and different context, Uh, like, ideas that might influence that, because... We do see that Hargreaves was around and like had a life in an earlier time period. And so his idea of what it means to do one's duty as a father is likely very different from what we're expecting as the audience or like the standard we would set. And so we're like over here being like, oh, he's so cold and unfeeling and unconnected to any sort of realistic idea of childhood development and needs and emotional needs. and he might be over there thinking in this 1800s mindset of like, well, I'm making sure they have shelter and clothing and an education and... And those are the things that kids it. need. And then I don't need to do anything else. I don't need to talk to them. I'm making sure they're reading the classics. Like, I I have someone to watch them. I've, I've got a woman to watch over them. Like, yep. I don't... I've done my part. I made a woman to watch over <laughs> Yes. I couldn't find a wife because no one would have me, but I hired someone. Okay, that didn't work. So I made someone. Yeah. Part of it could come down to these different cultural expectations of what it means to be a good father. I don't think that's all it is. It also might come down to the fact he is a literal alien. And the fact that he's a literal alien might come with completely different contexts for what it means to be a good parent of offspring or of any sort of younger creatures in your care. Yeah. I suspect that season three is going to see him start off as a villain and then be... I was going to say humanized, and that's not quite the right word in this context, but like, I think there's going to be some explanation given for why he was raising them the way that he was, and we'll get a lot more backstory on that. Maybe. And probably a lot more exploration of some of the other kids born that day. Maybe. And that, I don't want to go away from this too quickly because we haven't really talked about Grace, but like, but that would make sense, especially with Lila. We'll get back, get to that in a minute. But going back to this idea of, you know, the different expectations or perceptions of what your responsibility is as a parent, as a mother, specifically as a father, specifically as a child, as a son or daughter, like there are so many different temporal and cultural contexts that mold that. And Hargreaves made a lot of choices in terms of him building and programming grace. And we see like there's this very clear 50s influence, 50s and 60s influence on what she looks like, how she talks, this Texas influence on how she talks because she's literally modeled on a specific person, but also on these like ideals of femininity and motherhood of Americana. And that is something, those are choices he made because he literally made her, even if he was just trying to make her like the grace he knew, I don't think that's what he ended up doing. Well, there's some interesting aspects there because For one, I think it's a little bit strange because the Grace he knew was a scientist. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying. He definitely didn't remake her. Yeah. But also, 
Grace exists in the timeline where Diego didn't go back and incite a breakup of their relationship. Right. And it's possible that that will have changed in the timeline for season three. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether she was dead in the original timeline because of things to do with being around Hargreaves or whether they broke up anyway and then he made Grace and how whether that influence was in that house mm-hmm. like whether he'd have the same memories of her to build something with that spirit yeah it's hard to say yeah but there's just a lot of reflections of like potential conflicts like they feel like he was so cold and not a good parent and like very toxic because they grew up in early aughts context at least with the way the show is set or like you know in the 80s and 90s and the expectations for your parent in that time is very different than in the time that we see Hargreaves living previously and in the 1960s even where in the 1960s also it was considered totally acceptable for a father to work all day and be very aloof and in his office and not spending lots of time with his kids maybe occasionally on the weekends like going to the park or something but like not being that warm and not being certainly not being considered neglectful or derelict of like emotional duty to have that sort of distant and business-like relationship with his family. Yeah. And you wait until they're sort of 15 and 16 and you can be fairly sure they're not going to die of cholera. So. Yeah. One of the seven has become a parent in the time mm-hmm. that has passed. And I think Allison's issue of using her power to have complete control over her child mm-hmm. is a very believable natural outcome of being Hargreaves child. Yes. And like, if Hargreaves had Allison's power, he would have used, it, used on his it, kids. it all the time. He yep. would have used it all the time. Yeah, I 100% believe that. But even if she hadn't been Hargreaves' child, the temptation is so believable because, like, I have not ever been a parent, but I've worked with a lot of kids and a lot of kids of a lot of different ages and a lot of different ability, various circumstances, and. I understand that the very early years of a, of childhood are very trying on, on new parents, like you're sleep deprived and it's exhausting and there's a lot of bodily fluids and things like that. Like you get really get stretched to the end of your rope. And it's very easy for me to imagine that you'd get to a point where you make that mistake, where you, you give in that one time and you think it's just going to be the one time, which is what she says. Like, you know, she just couldn't get her child to stop screaming about something i don't remember what it was but it's just like you just want a moment of peace and you think it won't hurt anything and you think it won't be a big deal but it's it's that breach of trust and it's also that once you've done it once it's easier to justify doing it again like oh nothing bad happened before etc and so like i get it you know it's fucked up and it's wrong and she shouldn't do it and she knows that and i appreciate that that's how it's handled in the show but it's also very relatable and understandable to me yeah and i think it's one of the things where Like, this is a show about seven people with bizarre superhuman abilities, and it does such a good job of saying, these people have these abilities. Okay, everything else has to be realistic. Mm -hmm. And it's whimsical and farcical in some ways, but never to a point where it breaks the suspension of disbelief. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there are even, like, the musical numbers, and maybe those are a little bit beyond, like, a tiny stretch. But not by that much, honestly. I think they're usually pretty well integrated. But that they're still humans responding to this element, this one big thing that you, you know, the one buy that you kind of get for this sort of premise. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the musical elements are part of how the story's being told. Mm-hmm. And, like, they're a artistic choice, but I don't think they tell an unbelievable story or unbelievable characters through them, and that's the big thing. No, I agree. In fact, a lot of the time, they're highlighting very relatable and understandable and human parts of the character development and the character relationships. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest sticking points that I had was being unsure of what Vanya's power was. Yeah, it's still kind of murky. Like, I still don't quite get what it is because, like, at the beginning, it sort of seems like, oh, it's manipulation of sound waves, but then that doesn't really quite work with the stuff with the kid in season two. So it's clearly more than that. Meh? Yeah. Also, how it sound waves bleach everything and draw life force out of people. Like, again, there are a lot of unanswered questions. It's clearly more than that. Yeah. We don't know what that exception to the rule is. Mm-hmm. So one of the really interesting things about season two and within this family dynamics conversation is the introduction of Lila. Yes. In that so much of her story is a replication of the story of the others. Yeah. I was waiting for someone else from that like 42 pregnancies or whatever to show up in the story. Like I remember asking you about it in season one being like, what about the other was it 35 kids and you're like i imagine they'll get to that in season two and you were very right that is exactly what happened i appreciate that it's very much the same kind of situation it's the handler from the commission who try to curate a specific timeline who does a very similar thing to hargreaves and identifies one of the kids and maneuvers things to get that child to adopt her and she does that by killing lila's parents And then lying to Lila and saying that they didn't value her or want her or something like that. And it's very much the same relationship. It's replicating it, but it's replicating it with a mother instead of a father. And so I appreciate that it kind of takes that dynamic and makes it more about power and manipulation and instrumentalizing a person who has a capacity that you want to use and shows that that's not necessarily a thing that's because Hargreaves is a man or patriarchy or whatever. Like, it's just as much a thing as anyone who wants power could do that. Yeah. And you really see how much it really is about her instrumentalizing Lila and not really caring about her because she then turns around and tries to do the exact same thing to Harlan and is very much willing to throw Lila under the bus and, like, let her get killed or whatever and take him away and it would just be the two of them i think she says at one point so like clearly not through any an abundance of affection even though she literally raised lila and you'd think she'd have some connection to her by that point apparently not the handler is very clearly a sociopath yes she is very clearly a sociopath more so i think than hargreaves is depicted because of the scenes with pogo and grace i think it is shown that he does have some fondness for people he's just very bad at showing it and communicating it but with the handler, there is very much nothing, nothing there. Like she seems nice, but she is ice cold all yeah. the way through. She will do whatever is necessary. There's a reason that all of her like fancy garb is ornated with spiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She loves only power. What happens to the Lila at the end of season two? Because the handler is killed, right? By the Swede. I think she grabs a brief- briefcase Lila grabs and uh, bamps. So we don't know what happened to her. I love that that's a verb. Do you think the handler's gone? Um, She gets killed, but there's time travel in this. So yeah. all bets are off. I don't know. Also, Kate Walsh is great as the handler, and I could see them wanting to continue to have her as part of the series or maybe with flashbacks with Lila. 
Like, I, I could see her continuing to be involved in one form or another, even though she's ostensibly killed at the end of season two. I mean, she's ostensibly killed at the end of season one as well. Yeah, but it was so. even, yeah, it was it was more ambiguous. I very much wasn't surprised that she came back after the first attempted death. And yeah, the second one, I think they are trying to make it clear that, no, 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 she really is dead this time. But again, I don't know if that means gone. Yeah. I mean, Ben is dead too. And we know he's back in season three. Because it's a different timeline. Because it's a different timeline. Well, they also go like Ben's dead for real, for real dead, not like just dead and only visible to Klaus, but like gone, gone. And yeah. then he's back corporeal in another timeline. So like, yeah, who knows? We've gone off on my own little theorizing tangent and not what we're supposed to talk about. Mm. I think there's a real danger of that with this show. It is a fascinating uh, show to theorize about. It is. And so I think one of the most engaging things about it is I think that it is structured for that. Very much like Steven Universe, like it's the same kind of a thing. There's so many different threads and they're so interesting. And they all have such like a rich array of possible implications that, you know, your mind sort of fiddles with them a lot. Yeah, I think we were about halfway through season two before I realized how well it was doing it, which I think is a sign of how well it was doing it. But it does such a good job of telling multiple stories of multiple characters in different threads alongside each other mm -hmm. without it becoming oh, this episode's about Luther or... No, we haven't had anything about Diego in a while. Yeah. The way that different characters will come together and team up for a little bit here and there is very just natural and organic, or at least it appears so. I'm sure it takes mm -hmm. a lot of work to get it that way. It's very elegant. Yeah, so I did really love that about it. And I just think it's a great aspect of storytelling that you see done not so well very often. Yeah, well, it the threads are woven together very seamlessly in a way you were saying earlier like it's not like there are chunks that are just focused on one character there's never going to be a specific storyline that you're not that interested in and so you can skip chunks of that that's not how this series works yeah i think it would have been very easy to end up with the seven of them as kind of an amorphous blob mm -hmm. where there was really three big characters and then a few side characters and i mean ben is a major character despite being dead yeah he is less major than the other ones, I would say. Less so by the end of the second season. In the first season, he's less prominent. Sure, but he's an important part of the narrative still. Yes, and he's an important part of the narrative because of his presence in Klaus's parts and because of his absence in everyone else's parts, which is a really neat trick that they managed to pull off. Yeah, and only works because Klaus is kind of a dick. Yeah. Which I guess makes it a fairly natural time to actually dig into klaus a little bit yeah we didn't really talk about the klaus ben relationship when we were talking about the family dynamics but i do think that's one of the more interesting pairs within the seven because once ben has died which we still don't have a whole lot of clarity on the details for klaus is the only one who can see and interact with him and seems to lie to everyone else about ben's presence or absence and what ben is and isn't saying and various things and Ben is forced into this horrible role of watching someone he cares about make horrible mistakes all the time and do things to literally keep from seeing him, among other things, but also to get away from him constantly. And like, that has to be horribly painful. Yeah. I really appreciate the detail at the end of season two that Ben didn't want to go into the light and had lied to Klaus about that. Yeah. In a way that made Klaus kind of beat himself up for a long time yeah like it's kind of messed up but it makes that 
relationship much more equitable in its fucked upness. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the same thing and I couldn't quite think of a good way to say it. Like, it makes them both the asshole there. Because, yeah, Klaus is constantly lying about whether or not Ben is there and how Ben has, you know, weighed in on an issue or whatever. But also, Ben lied about that huge fucking thing in a way that probably made Klaus feel horrific for, like, years and may have been an underlying part of his drug abuse. Like, there's a whole lot there of, like, the guilt of not only feeling like you were part of letting your brother down in a way that got him killed, but then potentially, like, manipulated him into losing out on heaven. I cannot imagine the kind of guilt that would be. Yeah. Of course, then to double down on that by then lying about that person all the time. But, like, I know it does, it makes... Both of them are the asshole. Yeah, it makes them both the asshole. (laughs) We're we're not saying it's okay to be an asshole to someone if they were kind of an asshole to you a while ago. Um, But it's kind of that thing of, like, people are the most hurtful and inconsiderate of the people that they trust to not leave them because of that. Like, you show your worst to the people you love and trust the most. Because if you do it, do it to people you don't love and trust, they're going to bail on your life. And they're going to be like, yeah, fuck this. I don't need this in my life, which is fair. Mm. You know, like, so we hurt the ones we love because we trust them to still be there once we are past that terrible moment. And I think you really see that with Klaus and Ben. They show each other the worst of themselves, but they kind of need someone to show that to. Yeah. So one of my favorite storytelling things that this series did was send Klaus to Vietnam for a year and not show you the majority of it. Mm-hmm. It does such a fascinating thing to that character while still managing to keep him very much the same character. Mm-hmm. Like, it's transformative without erasing that character. Like, he doesn't come back and he's fixed or anything. He just comes back with a new outlook on things. And he doesn't come back broken. because He was already a pretty broken person when he went. He's just differently traumatized, but also differently strengthened because he formed a strong, genuine connection with another person in a way he hadn't before. He had he actually fell in love and that changed him. But he also saw the horror of war and that changed him in a different way than having the other experiences that he'd had. Yeah, he spent his life running away from everything that's too permanent. Mm -hmm. And apparently that's harder to do in Vietnam. Yeah, he had to stay in one place and form a connection with people for a year because it was literally contingent, like, his survival was literally contingent on that. Yeah, like, it's fascinating to me because Klaus is kind of introduced as such comic relief, but I think he has also the most, like, tragic story. It's kind of like uh, the classic clown. Yeah. Tragedy, comedy combination. Mm-hmm. He's fun and lighthearted because he laughs in the face of death. Mm-hmm. It's kind of meaningless to him. When they go back to the 1960s, it's very believable he's ended up in the head of a cult. Yeah. It's like, that comes up and you're like, yeah, mm-hmm. that is what would happen, isn't it? Yep. I mean, it's like Allison ending up involved in the civil rights movement. It's like, yes, these people end up in that time. That is what happens with them. That, that, those the circles they end up running in because that's who they are as people. <laughs> One of the things I think is interesting about Klaus and the cult is that Ben goes along with it. Yeah. When we're introduced to them again, you can see that Ben is kind of tiring of it. Yeah. I wonder how much of it is just that he's relieved to see Klaus with a purpose, mm-hmm. regardless of whether that purpose is kind of shitty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But also, like, it's weird. He's the head of a cult, but also 
they worship him for things that are true. He literally does have powers and does know things about other people and connected to their lives and the dead and things like that. Like, he's a spiritual leader because he is literally a medium, like actually legitimately a medium, and can influence the physical world in ways that don't make sense to other people because he's, you know, a medium and dead people can help him, like, levitate and stuff. So... It's weird. He's head of a cult, but he's not actually lying. Like, he says he's a fraud at the end to try and get them to go away, and they totally don't take it the way he intends because, of course, they don't. They're part of a cult. But (sighs) he is not actually a fraud. I mean, he's a little bit of a – he's sort of misrepresenting some of the things. Like, you know, his words of wisdom and things are, like, always song lyrics from the future and things like that. The wisdom of the late 90s. Yes, the wisdom of the late 90s, but – if you think about it, though, like what he actually is doing is providing them guidance literally from the future and communion literally with the dead and like another plane of existence that other people can't touch, which means he's not a fraud. Like he's actually pretty legitimate. Yeah, I guess that's true. He's just sort of extorting them for well, not extorting, but he's manipulating them into like free love and things like that, which they all probably wanted to do anyway, because this hippie culture in the 60s is part of it part of the thing anyway so yeah he thinks he's a fraud but i don't know i don't think he's actually as much of one as he thinks he is yeah so we hinted at a little bit with the uh natural choices for klaus and allison mm-hmm. i i think the structure of the seasons in this is fascinating in that season two is a complete paradigm shift from the first one like sure they're still trying to stop an apocalypse mm-hmm. but setting it in a completely different era is makes it a very different sort of story yeah. And season three is clearly going to be a very different sort of story as well. Yeah. Which I guess might come a little bit from, I don't know how closely it follows the comics, but it might be something to do with it being a format of the going from volume to volume of that being more inclined to have those paradigm shifts. Yeah. And I think that the the changes were well chosen and like the era is very well chosen because all of the paths for each of the seven is very clear. Like each of their presence highlights something else about the time. So with Diego even, who I think probably has the least impact on the time, it at least reminds you of like the Cuban Missile Crisis being a thing and the fact that there was more suspicion on like Hispanic Americans and people who might be of Cuban descent because at at one point he's identified that way. Like he's identified that way several times. Yeah, and Um, he's like the fuck yeah and it's just because like that's the perspective of the time and so it kind of puts this different lens on parts of the 60s that you might not necessarily think about in the same thought as the civil rights movement the 1960s cults like the branch davidians and all the other like cults that were going on during that period of time so we think about all of those things as being in the 60s but i don't think we always think of them as happening concurrently in the way that this shows that they do and the way that each of those people's perspective kind of highlights all at the same time yeah so let's run through it quickly luther ends up being a strongman bodyguard fighter makes a lot of sense not the most inventive thing going on there but it ties us into the mob it ties us into also the JFK assassination right in that he ends up working for Jack Ruby who shot Lee Harvey Oswald mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense that that is the role that he would fit into if he'd been there for a year and needed to find a job and he's walking down the street looking like that someone's gonna go you wanna take part in the fight yeah or even just <laughs> I'll like I'll put money on you or even just like you wanna bounce 
people out of this club for a while, you know, intimidate people into not causing trouble because you're huge. No one's going to want to start shit if you're in there. Yeah. Diego obviously ends up in mental hospital because he's trying to do crazy things. The Cuban stuff that you already mentioned. Allison joins the civil rights movement, settles down and gets married. Yeah. Which I think is an interesting choice when so much of her season one arc is about her ex and her romance with Luther and her child that it really highlights the necessity for her to get married. To me, yeah, it highlights the importance for her of having a community and having connections. She has to have a life outside of being part of the Umbrella Academy and having these powers and that external expectation from the Hargreaves situation. Because that's what happens when she leaves the Hargreaves, uh, the Umbrella Academy, and cuts ties and gets married and leaves that life behind. And then when she's stranded in the 60s for who knows how long, possibly the rest of her life, she's like, okay, well, I'm going to build a life then. I'm not going to just wait around for an indeterminate amount of time and not do anything, which I totally understand. Yeah. And Five understands too. Like he does acknowledge like that he gets it. And when she tries to start saying like, oh, I didn't know how long it would be. And she's like, no, I get it. And especially because he acknowledges like the last time that he got stranded in time he didn't come back for like 20 years or something. And the rest? 35? 35 years? 45? Well, yeah. for them, like when he, from the point when they were 15. Oh, yeah. Like from their perspective in the timeline, he left when they were 15. He came back when they were like 30 or something, yeah. right? I think 28. When they were 28? Yeah. Maybe. Point being, it was, it was more than 10 years. Yeah. That he, from when he left to when he came back. And so having that perspective, he gets it and... That's clearly part of the logic in her mind is, well, well, five fucked up the time travel thing again. The last time he did that, we didn't see him for more than 10 years. I'm not going to just wait around and not have a life for 10 years. It's been a week, so who knows? Yeah. And I like the way that that relationship is built up and that like it shows that she has built her community there in a lot of ways. The relationship with her husband and the other people that she met through working at the hair salon. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate... And we'll get into this with another thing as well. Just like the bringing that depiction of the violent reaction to the civil rights movement to the forefront in a mainstream way. Yes, I think a lot of people have lost touch with that. It's something that I revisited fairly recently. There's an excellent graphic novel about the lunch counter sit-ins that does get into some of that that I actually read for a class as part of my MSW program. It's not March, is it? The one that's by John Lewis? Yes. Yeah, it's March yeah. parts one, two, and three. Right, yes. And it does get into like how violent, how hateful people were, the s- people spitting on, on them, throwing food on them, calling them all manner of things, just how ugly that was. And I think a lot of people look back on the 1960s and the civil rights movement with these rose-colored glasses and think, you know, racism is over now and like that fixed it or whatever. and that's just not true. It was pretty awful. And yeah. like it took a lot of courage and a lot of perseverance to stick with that in the face of all of that. And I appreciate that they show some of that in there because I think a lot of people have forgotten. Yeah, well, it's the thing. I mean, or don't know. The one all. thing like, I mean, John Lewis took part in those and he died last year. Mm-hmm. But there's the pictures of the integration of schools. Right. 
And there's been pictures floating around just this last week. I've seen them going around again mm-hmm. of the, those people are all still alive. Yeah. They're in their like 70s now, right? Like, yeah. yeah. On both sides of that. Yep. They're still active members of the community doing their thing. Yeah. But a lot of people sort of in the middle generations, like people who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s right now don't remember that. And yeah. they think those times are past or something now. Some people, I think, like they, I think some people do have like a romanticized view of it and don't realize how bad it was, what a momentous thing it was, how bad, you know, segregation and Jim Crow laws were, like don't understand the ongoing legacy of racism and racist policies now. And it's a real problem. And I appreciate that the Umbrella Academy highlights it in that small way through setting this in the 1960s and having one of the characters be a mixed race woman in yeah. the civil rights movement. I mean, the year when this is set, my parents were both alive and not much younger than I was when 9-11 happened. Like, it's that recent still. Mm-hmm. We touched on Klaus and Ben's actions and how that fits in with this. I guess five story is defined by this, by the fact that he's half of him is trying to assassinate JFK. His is much more pragmatic around the situations that come up because of the show so he's a little bit of an oddball for this which leaves vanya mm-hmm. for which i'm really glad that they gave her an lgbt storyline mm-hmm. and i would be fascinated to know what the decisions behind that were whether that's directly from the comics or whether that was a decision partially driven by elliot page we talked a little bit about some of the costuming for him and interesting choices being made there off the microphone yeah yeah in terms of like setting the second season in the 1960s and i think we're running the risk of talking too more about the second season but that does we talked a little about the first season in the first half yeah provides an opportunity to show again how far we've come since the 1960s as far as public acceptance of homosexuality as like not not only a thing that a person can be but a thing that a person can choose to live in alignment with because that's very much the conflict there is that she falls in love with a woman who takes her in after hitting her with her car. It's very back to the future. <laughs> and the woman that she falls in love with after they have slept together and when Vanya is trying to convince her to like run away with her is very much like that's not even a possibility. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's just not how life works. Like, that's crazy, <laughs> you yeah. know? And at that point in time, it was a lot harder. There was much less example of that being a possible way to, you know, plot your life. But not impossible. But also women couldn't get bank accounts without their, you know, on their own, like, in the 1960s. Like, to be an independent lesbian couple had a lot of hurdles. Yeah. And I mean, everything that we've just said about Alison and the civil rights movement applies of it's really important that they're bringing that into the mainstream reminding us of how recent that was yeah i mean gay marriage was only legalized in what 2015 so like that was literally six years ago and you're only saying six years because we're recording this on the 22nd of january yeah so it was really about five years ago and before then there was more public acceptance of homosexuality but it was by no means to the point that it is now and far and away different than in the 60s yeah but back to your comment about our conversations about the costume choices for elliot page as vanya like i do think that there is a lot of room if they want to go the path of having vanya 
be a trans character and later come out as trans masculine or non-binary in some way um, because I don't think that they have done anything to indicate that Vanya has a strong attachment to a feminine identity. Yeah. And obviously gender presentation is not the same as identity, but I mean, the no. cues definitely don't indicate that to me. No, I'm interested to see how it is. There's certainly, it wouldn't be necessary for them to have Vanya be trans. Oh, no. But there's I'm, I'm just certainly saying... part of me that would like to see it. So. Sure, yeah, it would be great to have a trans actor actually depict a trans experience rather than having cis actors do that all the time and then be nominated for Oscars for it. Um, yeah. We are definitely <laughs> seeing a move towards that. Yeah. I do really appreciate it. It's one of the few reasons I would recommend watching the OA, which mm. I got halfway through season two and I just, uh, is that there is a trans character in that who is incidentally trans. It's a part of their narrative, but it's not their defining feature and they're played by a trans character. Trans actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a similar minor character in some of the later seasons of Grey's Anatomy. I think this has come up before. Yeah. Point being, like, you know, there's the occasionally things going around of like when people complain that somebody's transition came out of nowhere, like there were no signs or whatever. And then, like, people will always retrospectively be like, I mean, there were. There was a lot of effort also to conform to social expectations, but signs were there if you're looking for them and i think that's very much the case with the depiction of vanya as a character like if that is an arc that they decide to follow with the character i don't feel like it would be inconsistent with anything that they have done with the character up to this point agreed i really like vanya as a character vanya is a great character so we were talking about vanya which i think makes a logical move to talk about how there's an interesting portrayal that i think the only other thing we get a really similar thing to is in x-men of the effects of there being people with powers like this and that being public knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's perhaps not as clearly public knowledge as you might expect. Like oh, people... the Incredibles. Oh, the Incredibles. Yes, you're right. It's perhaps not as clearly public knowledge as you might expect. Like people still seem surprised when strange things happen. Mm -hmm. But I guess they are fairly limited in number. But I feel you kind of know Umbrella Academy was down the street. But I guess by the time that most of season one is taking place... It's been a little while since they mm -hmm. were doing anything and they've probably fallen out of public eye with the yeah. exception of Allison. Yeah, well, they've dispersed and Luther's on the moon and Vanya wrote a book, but it didn't do that well. Although it must have done okay or it wouldn't have gotten a paperback edition. Now you're stealing my points. You're right, I am. I'm sorry. Charlin um, got to enjoy me pausing it and giving a 10-minute dissertation on the publishing industry and how the odds of paperback books coming out of a hardcover book is... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, with Harold, who is... Vanya's love interest slash main antagonist for the first season. Yeah. He is obsessed with the Umbrella Academy kids because he has the same birthday and he's alienated from his family because his mother died when he was born and his father is abusive. And then he murdered his father. And then he murdered his father. So he doesn't have powers, but he, a part of him kind of expects to discover he has them when he's a child because he wants a way out of that horrible situation before he's killed his father. And he's rejected by the Umbrella Academy, by Hargreaves in particular, when he tries to join them. In a them. really dickish way. In a really, really shitty way. That's very similar to like the Syndrome thing in The Incredibles, where like Syndrome wants to be included in the superhero stuff, wants to help Mr. Incredible, and he shuts him down and is like, go home, I work alone, and all that stuff. And there's this implication that Syndrome or Buddy can't help because he doesn't have powers and he's not a superhero. And that's very much the same sort of situation that happens with Harold where he 
then turns that adoration and obsession that he had over the like magically gestated Umbrella Academy kids into like a hatred and a need for vengeance and to tear them down the way that they made him feel torn down. Um, and so you end up with him then also like strongly identifying with Vanya, who is the other person he feels has had the same kind of experience where Hargreaves has rejected her and shut her down and made her feel left out and preys upon those feelings of vulnerability and neglect and outsiderness to push her away from the rest of the family or get her to push the rest of the family away and feel closer to him and trying to get to her this sense that abusers often do of like I'm the one who you can rely on who makes you feel special and that you can count on yeah I really love the portrayal of that and I really hate the portrayal of that because it's such like textbook abusive relationship yeah and it's just like ah this is done very well and I hate it yeah the way that he hides things from her the way he manipulates her and the way he convinces her to not listen to her family and to cut them off and turn her against them and turn them against her more turning her against them trying to turn Vanya against Allison who's the only family member who is close to her and is legitimately concerned for her well-being but is also a threat to Harold because she's suspicious of him is is very very well done yeah I think one of the nice touches of how they respond to their upbringing Mm-hmm. which is possibly one of the few things that did drag me out of the narrative at a points is that they have this life above mission attitude at times mm-hmm. where like five turns up and is like especially in season two is like there's an apocalypse in a week the world's gonna end and they're like yeah that that happens there's more important things i'm gonna go see my girlfriend yeah i mean and you're being a little bit i don't know you're you're blowing Reductive. that yeah, well, you're blowing it a little out of proportion. You're being yeah. a little dramatic there. But, like, I mean, kind of. It's more like, okay, but I can't let that take all of my focus. Like, I'm not going to let that keep me from trying to rescue this person I care about, try to follow through on this mission that I have, or let down these other people that I feel I have a responsibility to. To me, what that says is, like, going back to the first season where you see the flashback of them as kids and, like, Hargreaves from the point that they're young has them out foiling bank robberies and crap sends luther to the moon to fulfill a mission they've lived their whole lives or at least a large part of their formative lives going from crisis to crisis all the time and if you are having to deal with one crisis after another you are going to have to figure out what's important to you and how to maintain your life through those and there's an extent to which part of that in includes sometimes taking moments out of the crisis to ensure that you will have a life to go back to after it. I think a lot of people who live in or who uh, work in like disaster oriented and crisis oriented jobs probably can relate to that a lot. People who come in like after a disaster or work in emergency rooms or firefighters and things like that. Like there is always going to be another call. There is always going to be another disaster that has to be managed. And sometimes before you head out to that, you have to call the babysitter to make sure they can pick up your kids. <laughs> you know, you need to take those few minutes. Otherwise, there are other problems once you've finished putting out the fire. Yeah. Luther's reaction to five at the start of season two is very much like, I'm not interested to go away. But otherwise, I agree with you. Yes. Like the stuff with Vanya is like, 
okay, we've got to go back to the future. I've got to go and get this person. That is fair. With Luther, though, I think part of that is a crisis of faith in himself to be able to handle the crisis. Like, he failed at averting the last apocalypse. And in fact, in a large part, he caused the last apocalypse. He provoked it. And so I think he's decided that he is not the person who should do that because clearly he fucks it up. Yeah. It's like, it's not my problem. Let someone else handle it. Someone who doesn't have a track record of botching it. And that's fair. Yeah. So I think that's all the main things that we want to talk about. But I think the big question is, where does this go in season three? Well, I think it's fairly clear that we're going to explore some of the larger world dynamics of what's been happening. Like so far, we've been seeing effects. And I think we're going to have to dig into either wider effects or further back causes and like influences because we're going to have to follow the thread of what happened to the other 35 kids or at least what happened to Lila. And I think that naturally follows on to figuring out what happened with all of those women who suddenly gave birth to kids that they weren't pregnant with before and what's going on with Hargreaves and him being an alien and what are his interests on the dark side of the moon. Like, I think that they've teased enough of those things in the first two seasons that if they don't start addressing those in the third season, it's going to feel like a broken promise to the audience. So that's what I suspect is the the direction. I don't know that they're going to really all the way unravel that. I'd be a little surprised if they did. But I think that they need to be digging into where do these people come from? Why are these things happening? Who are all these players? What is the timeline that the commission wants to preserve? Who are deciding those things? Because I think that enough of those questions have been peaked now. I think you're right. I think we'll probably start to get answers. Mm Mm-hmm. As Umbrella Academy runs on slightly shorter seasons, mm-hmm. I think we'll probably delve into some things more and some other things will just be sort of moved along. Mm-hmm. I think we will get more of a backstory of Hargreaves. I think the dark side of the moon will probably be part of the climax. Mm. Like it'll be setting up season four will be an answer to that or a heading towards that answer. Mm-hmm. The commission, I'm really interested to see what they do with, because whether they've killed the handler off entirely or not, it's in a sort of state of being rebuilt. Yeah, it's in under new management. Right. And I think that would be very interesting if they haven't killed the handler off, especially if it's a younger version of the handler who returns back up. Mm. Like um, from a different timeline or something? Yeah, or just like they go and find her from an earlier timeline or something. Mm-hmm. I could see there being something she needs, She only she has the answer to mm-hmm. that they need to ask her. But her finding that that's what's gone on with the commission could be interesting. As you say, that is a big question mark over what is the commission's goal? Mm-hmm. Who has decided what the correct timeline is? Yeah, well, that was the first question I had when we're introduced to the commission of like, we preserve the timeline and make sure what's supposed to happen happens. Literally, my first reaction was, and who gets to decide that? What are the criteria for what has to happen? Especially when you find out that that includes an apocalypse in 2019. Yeah. You Why know? does it have to end there? Right. And that they're okay with letting it end in World War Three, I guess, in the 60s. Maybe. Because we don't see the commission working against that. Yeah. It's very strange. We definitely need some more backstory on that. I think a lot of season three is going to hinge on the whole doppelganger situation. We definitely have a replacement Ben. Yeah, the alternate timeline Ben and the alternate timeline that they're in in general for season three. But there is a question whether the other six 
or other however many are the same people mm-hmm. or whether they're different kids from that and whether Hargreaves' interaction with them when they were in the 60s meant he changed his process and either got different ones or got more. Yeah, if they, that's interesting. If they are the doppelgangers, I'm a little bit hesitant because I can see there being so much room for cringy, uncomfortable stuff with that. Yeah, I think they probably are going to go with other ones being the same or maybe a circumstance where Ben's the only one left or something like that. Well, you see the shadows of people standing I, Oh, above. do you? Yeah, I forgot about that. I don't know if you can identify the silhouettes or not. Yeah. I forget. It's hard to say because Five and the Handler and like a lot of stuff with the commission makes it very clear that, you know, the whole butterfly effect thing, like it really is a super tangible thing. Like in order to change a massive course of events is like you kill the butcher and that person doesn't get food poisoning and what have you, et cetera. Yeah. The whole world changes. And so the fact, like, everything that they did in the 60s could result in a totally different subset of the 42, or maybe there's a different number of them that happen. Who knows? Uh, But a whole different subset of kids being raised by Hargreaves, as you point out, which is not really something I considered. Uh, I kind of assumed it would just be the same ones, um, and we just see, like, you know, alternate timeline versions of the same people. It's very comic book, which is what this comes from. So that's kind of what I expect, but it wouldn't be a break from the established rules if it wasn't that way well also i totally question any ranking where vanya is not the considered the most powerful or like most valuable or whatever if he hasn't done that whole bullshit gaslighting her into thinking she doesn't have powers thing because she's clearly like the nuke of those seven so yeah you know, just because hargreaves is sexist who knows I think it's arguable that the women have the most str- have the strongest mm, powers. Mm-hmm. Well, no, because maybe Klaus. It really kind of depends on what you consider power and what you. But honestly, like I really think like Luther should be at the bottom. Luther and Diego have like the least impressive and world affecting abilities compared to all of them, and for some reason they're one and two. Like it makes no fucking sense to me. While it doesn't make a lot of sense within what we know of her power, the fact that we see Allison can make people's brains explode yeah. does make her extremely powerful. Yeah, that opening scene at the beginning of the second season does introduce a lot of questions as to exactly what her power is and how it works. I am very confused about the structure of it because it does seem to be tied to the I heard a rumor thing, but I suspect that's a crutch. I suspect that's yeah. just how she learned how to use it and that's how she unlocks it, but I don't think that it makes a lot of sense for it to be a thing that is actually necessary for the exercise of it, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. I suspect that one of the things that we might see in season three is Alison learning to use her power without that crutch mm. and being able to do it more spontaneously. Yeah. Um, because honestly, what I think her power would make the most sense to be is basically Professor Xavier. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that with all of them... They seem to, and it makes sense under Hargreaves' methodology Mm -hmm. that they have learnt their powers to a point where they're useful to Hargreaves and stopped. Yeah. Like, Thor doesn't reach his potential and Hargreaves is upset about that. Diego can clearly bend bullets shot at him and just stopping them straight, but the only use his power is put to for most of the story is bending knives that he's thrown because he got that far, Hargreaves was like, great, that's useful, done. Yeah, practice that. 
yeah. forever. <laughs> Get better at that very narrow bit of what you can do, probably. And the limitations that he clearly put on them with people mm-hmm. like Five. So right. I suspect that we'll see moving away from those limitations, partially because that's the natural growth of those characters were not held back by Hargreaves. But also because it's the natural progression within a comic book world that they're going to get more powerful. Yeah. But going back to who the other people might be, I think because they go back and tell Hargreaves lots of things, he knows that these kids are going to be born and can prepare and try and get into a position Mm. to be able to get more of them. That's true. When he gets the seven, it happens and he goes, oh God, and goes and tries to get as many as he can. He gets seven. Mm -hmm. The Academy could be full. In mm-hmm. this world. It could be. They could have Lila. They could have Lila. There could be a second Lila there. Mm-hmm. I had another thing I wanted to call for season three and I can't remember what it was. Oh, Harlan's got to show back up at some point. Yeah, probably. Because he clearly still has the power. Oh, that's the scene that I wanted to call. I think Allison is going to go and visit a very old Ray at some point. Mm, yeah, I can see that. Whether that will be on camera or not, I don't know, but I think it will be nodded to. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if in the timeline that they're in, if Dave is still alive and maybe Klaus could visit a very old Dave. Mm, possibly. Their connection would be much less developed because they would have only met for those few days in the 60s, which were quite a roller coaster of days rather than the established like year-long relationship that they would have had in uh, the original timeline. But It'd be much more of a, hey, you're that weird dude who saved my life situation. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know that you saved my life. I just know that I didn't die and you had said I would. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to call for season three? I'm very worried it's going to be very cringy at times. I mean, I think that you've called most of the ones that make logical sense that we've talked about before this. I think Vanya will be cool. So I think that's a pretty good response to the big question. A little meandering, but you know, it'll do. But I think the bigger... Well, I mean, it's it's sort of our theories for season three. It's going to be a little bit all over the place. That's That's fair. But I think the bigger question is, how do you feel about the time travel in this? I'm very glad you asked. Doesn't work. Oh, tell me more. I have this thing with time travel. I know it's difficult, but it's been messed up so many times that you know all the ways it's going to be wrong. And it doesn't work in this one. Just define it. Tell me how it works and it's fine. But they don't. It doesn't work. Because people go back in time and then... Okay, so, first of all, They have to create a new timeline. That has to be how time travel works in this. When you go back in time, the time that you left still exists, but the point that you go back to branches and selects a new one. Here, let me show you this diagram. Oh, we're on a podcast. Damn it. Can attach one to the show notes, maybe? Does that work? I'm not sure if it does. When they leave 2019 to go back to 1963, they have to create a new timeline at that point that would lead, at first, to the destruction of the planet in nuclear war. When they prevent that, it creates a new 2019. And we know that that has to be what happens because they send Five back to the future. When old Five goes to the future, that should cause a ripple effect that immediately ages up the Five that is still in 1963 because he would have gone to 2019 as an old man, existed there, stopped the apocalypse, well, not stopped the apocalypse, traveled back to 1963 as an old man and been there. But it doesn't create a new timeline. But it doesn't ripple forward. But it doesn't ripple and make five older. Therefore, it has created a new timeline. And when that five then goes back in time, 
it will have to create a new timeline because we're told that's how time travel must work. Except that then Five and the others go forward in time, at which point they must be going to a different timeline. Because when they push Five into the new timeline that they create, you see the group of them from the original season one shot waiting for him through the vortex. And okay. throw that same fire extinguisher at him. Right. But when they go forward in time, they end up somewhere else where there's a different group of people. Except that nothing has happened between those two events that would change the timeline. All their interactions with Hargreaves that would change such events have already happened. So Old Five should have gone through to the new timeline with the new Hargreaves and the new Umbrella Academy, which is no longer called the Umbrella Academy, it's called something else and I've forgotten what it was, but that doesn't happen. So that doesn't work. Okay? Still mm -hmm. with me? Uh, kind of. Kinda. You know what really messes this up? It only works if when you travel back in time, it creates a new branch of a timeline and keeps the old one there, right? Do you agree? But then how does the commission conserve one specific timeline? Yeah. But then how does the commission conserve one timeline? That doesn't work. So I have a proposed solution. I'm not going to like this, am I? Because you're either going to be wrong or make me look stupid. I think that the issue might just be that five is shitty at time travel and occasionally goes to parallel timelines instead of the main one. And they might be changing the main one and there might be a main like prime one to go back to that is alterable and rewritable, but there are also branches and all parallel possibilities in terms of like many worlds, different things happen, there are different parallel ways things could have gone and five occasionally fucks up and gets to those including at the end when they're in the dark timeline with Ben, who is number one, and the Hargreaves, who knows about them. Because okay. five is not using a briefcase, which would theoretically keep you on the same timeline because it would be calibrated by the commission to always circle back on that one prime timeline. Hang on. Okay, so what you're saying is that when five travels back in time to the 60s, mm -hmm. he hops into another timeline. When he pushes old five back through it pushes him back to that original timeline but then at the end of the series when they jump back forwards they're taking it via briefcase so they stay within that timeline which is why they arrive at a different hargreaves yeah i think the briefcases might keep you along the timeline you're on like forward and back on the timeline you're on but five doesn't so necessarily have as fine of control or calculations or whatever and is sometimes off by something and ends up in a parallel timeline that's close but exists if something else happened a little differently. Which would explain the fact that the commission in the second timeline was okay with nuclear war in the 60s. But then that doesn't explain five jumping forward and backwards in supposedly the same timeline. Uh, jumping forwards in the same timeline originally. I don't know. I'm saying there's room for it. There's room for that being an explanation, I think. I'll have to consult my diagram. So I'm thinking about it kind of like, okay, if the timeline was a Word document, like on Google Drive, right? Or really more like a, a Word document that's being shared and like a large team of people are editing it at the same time. And you're supposed to download it all from a central location, but sometimes someone has downloaded it to their personal computer and they've gone and made edits and then they've uploaded it somewhere else and has a slightly different file name. And like, if you're trying to remember like how to type that 
URL to get to that very specific one, like by memory, you might fuck it up. You know what I mean? And five is like trying to put in the whole thing, like based on what he thinks the destination is. But sometimes maybe he's navigating to one that like Mabel uploaded from her own computer after making like a slight change last week. And it's not up to date with the other stuff that the rest of the team has done on like the prime copy that everyone else is referring to. I get what you're saying. I don't think you made that any clearer with that analogy. <laughs> I think it could work because what you I think effectively... a lot of people who have had to go to remote work in the past year are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. So effectively, that would mean that there was only one jump to a different timeline and then they kicked old five back to the other timeline. Yeah, I think it fixes the problem, but they need to explain it in the show. Sure. Like, there isn't a clear enough explanation, and so it is very confusing. But I think if you're looking at it, assuming there is a way that it works, that that might be how it works. It's a stretch. It's time travel. It's always going to be a stretch. I'm not sure what that does to a lot of the storytelling and messaging. I think it might fuck it up. I think it might sort of defeat the point of a lot of stuff and have some messages about whether you can or can't change things. Oh, well, you, clearly you can, because that main timeline is editable. That's the whole point. The commission's editing it constantly. It's just that sometimes if you're not doing it right, you end up editing the wrong document. Yeah. Okay. And well, then you've done a load of work, and then you realize that, oh, now, oh, damn it. Well, None of it counts. We'll revisit this point in our season three episode. <laughs> <sighs> Time travel could be so simple. It never is. Do you have any fun facts? So one fun fact is like a random thing that I do know about from the comics, even though I haven't read the comics, is that apparently Vanya has the name the White Violin in the comics, which is pretty cool and pretty appropriate, which they kind of nod to with like the bleaching of her concert outfit and her violin in the first season when she's destroying the world, like right before she destroys the moon, which is uh, really cool. Yeah. I uh I want to see her pick a violin up again in yeah. season three. That's what I missed from season two. Mm -hmm. I do like the nod to that in the uh, second season when they're trying to help her remember things and remember who she is. And one of the things that she remembers is playing the violin. And it it's a nod to the fact that episodic and procedural memory are different. And the fact that even when you can't remember specific things about your life and particular memories, you'll still have the abilities that you learned. You still remember how to do a thing. You might not know you know how to play the violin, but if you learned how, you still can. Super fascinating. There are a bunch of studies about this that determined, like, if you have a person who isn't unable to form new memories, basically take piano lessons. Every time they'll be like, oh, well, I don't know how to do this. They will get better and they will be more and more surprised about how good they are over time because they don't remember ever having learned previously yeah it's pretty fascinating stuff Me our too. brains are so weird it's fascinating sad and a great prank to play on someone i mean it's not so much a prank it is people trying to figure out how the brain works could you imagine like not ever remembering learning how to play an instrument or do some other no. like demanding skill and like someone puts it in your hands and like you're you just know how to do it like that would be so weird and so crazy and awesome yeah i mean aside from all the facts of like why that would happen well yeah, yeah. No, no no there's a whole lot of other reasons that 
not being able to have traumatic brain injury is bad yeah yes yes exactly that it would be you know you wouldn't be able to do a lot of other functional things in terms of you know having a uh, a lot of control over your life but yes there are a lot of other reasons that that situation would be bad but at least like that particular experience just sounds so fascinating yeah the fun fact i have is born out of the music we were watching this and i was like wow the music in this is done in a really interesting way it's Kind of similar to Legion. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of the same people involved in both shows, particularly in the music department. Yep, it's pretty cool. Um, So if you watch this and you were like, wow, I love the way music is used in this, go and watch Legion because it's the same, but more so, and then listen to our episode on it. Yep. Oh, I mean, just in case anyone isn't aware of it already, the comics originally were written by Jared Way, who is the lead singer for My Chemical Romance. Oh, see, that's a fun fact. I think most people know that at this point. See, you've mentioned it to me before, and so I technically did know that at some point, but I always forget, like, every single time. Like, maybe the next day, I will have forgotten. Like, every time you say it, I remember you told me before, <laughs> but it just does not stick in my brain. It's uh, it's weird that way. Have I told you about Manchester's worst advertising campaign? Oh, yes, you have, but it's very funny, so tell the podcast. Particularly in the UK, and I think some people here have said My Chemical Romance, big emo band, is known as MCR. And Manchester did a huge advertising campaign of sort of the same style as the I Heart NY for New York stuff with the white and the black letters and the heart. But it was I Heart MCR. (laughs) And it was every window and every bus all across Manchester. And it looked like it had been decorated by a teen scene girl. funny like i just imagine people like leaving manchester airport and just being like wow british people are really into into my chemical romance damn i didn't know they were so big over here Uh, and on that note uh, i just like where are the arm warmers oh they were there (laughs) it is kind of cold in manchester okay we will leave it there if you are listening to this and haven't yet checked us out on social media and such, please do. If you enjoy the show, you can support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar. You get access to all sorts of fun things, like all the things we didn't put in this episode, live recordings where you can chime in on Discord, and the ability to just yell at us whenever you want to about things we should do and things we've done wrong. It's great fun. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel where you can find all of our podcasts in a more shareable form. You can also find the videos we make where you can actually see us on the screen and we talk directly to you. It's very fun. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time. Oh, I think we'll keep the question, but I think we'll cut the end off of it. Oh, maybe. And us continually punching pop shields. (laughs) They're called pop shields because you have to pop them every so often. Yeah.